0: In these lectures, we've been looking at how God revealed himself in Old Testament times. And in this final lecture, I want to change the perspective somewhat by looking at what the Old Testament tells us about how God's people approached and worshipped him. Not in the first instance thinking of God revealing himself, but of the way in which his people came back to praise and adore him. However, we can't just look at it simply as what they decided to do because what the uh, worship of Israel, the way the worship of Israel was structured uh, was in accordance with what God approved of, with what God himself had mandated. So that even as we're looking at Old Testament worship, we're learning much about the character and purpose of, of God himself. However, we're also learning about how God's people respond to all that the Lord has done, all that the Lord has shown regarding himself and his purposes. He was the God in whom their fathers had put their trust and from whom their fathers had received their deliverance. And so in the words of Psalm 22, addressed to God, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, as the NIV renders it in its margin. Indeed, the book of Psalms in the Hebrew Bible is known as Tehillim praises. Psalms is a Greek title that came in later on. The book itself is called praises. And it ends on that triumphant note with a universal call to praise God let everything that hath breath praise the Lord praise the Lord or perhaps the second most common word of Hebrew that people know hallelujah it just comes after amen just a little bit now if we're thinking about the worship of Israel it's not implausible to think of it at three different levels there was the worship of the, the individual and the family, the worship of the local community, and the worship of the central sanctuary. And regarding the first two of these, we know remarkably little, that of the individual and that of the local community. As we look at scripture, the focus is on the worship of the sanctuary. First, the tabernacle, and then later on, the temple. Regarding the origins of that other Jewish institution, the synagogue, both scriptural and extra-scriptural sources remain blank, and it's therefore been an area where scholarly speculation has had a field day. Uh, There's nothing scholars like better than a question for which there's no evidence to provide an answer. But as we look at scripture, the focus is on the central sanctuary and what took place at that sanctuary when the people engaged in worship is presented to us as the natural culmination of all that the Lord had done for them whether it's focusing on what they had known of his salvation at the time of the exodus or later generations or what they'd known of his deliverance from the exile It's never seen as something separate. It's seen rather as something that grows out of the total religious life and experience of the people. Remember, there was the third term of the covenant bond, the covenant relationship. It was not just, I will be their God, they shall be my people, but there was also, I shall dwell among them. And God's presence with his people and all that that entails is the end result of his salvation. Notice, for instance, the language of Exodus chapter 29, verses 45 and 46. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that... I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. I brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. There was movement, there was purpose, there was a goal and aim. God did not just wish to redeem his people from evil, he wished to enter into communion and fellowship with them. Indeed, that's the whole structure of the book of Exodus. So often we look at the book of Exodus and we see it as made up of so many bits. But it is a story. It is a story that's moving towards a climax. And the climax is not when the Israelites go through the Red Sea. Nor indeed is the climax uh, when they gather around Mount Sinai. The climax is when the tabernacle is built and the cloud of God's presence comes And he dwells among them. There is this movement from bondage through deliverance through sanctification the giving of the law so that the people might truly be set apart to their God. And it doesn't stop there it goes through to the sanctuary the sanctuary established God's presence in their midst and the worship that would take place there. Now, when we're looking at a situation of worship, looking at a situation where people are responding, not just, just a Christian situation, but any situation, we always have to remember that there are two key aspects in the analysis. When we're looking at any situation of religious worship, we've got to ask, first of all, how do the worshippers perceive the deity that they are worshipping? And secondly, how do the worshippers perceive themselves? When we've analysed those two elements of the situation, we've got a clear grasp of what is going on in any situation of worship. And it's the same when we come and try to work out what was going on in the worship of Israel. How did they perceive the God they were worshipping And how did they perceive, think of themselves as they came to worship him? Now, as I say, I don't want to engage in speculation uh, about the first two levels, about which we know a little but not very much. Scripture focuses on the third level, the level of the worship of the sanctuary that, of course, began with the instructions that were given to Moses at Sinai. At Sinai, there were three main features of the worship that was instituted for Israel. There was the priesthood, the tabernacle, and the sacrifices. And together they express in symbolic fashion what it meant to have God dwelling with his people there was the personal presence. And that's very much associated with priesthood. Worship is an engagement of one person or with another. And priesthood emphasized that sinful human beings could not safely enter God's presence on their own. They have to be introduced by others who represent them the tabernacle was there as a perpetual reminder of the orderliness of all God's institutions. The regularity of its construction, the beauty of the fabric and of the various items in the tabernacle are part of the picture of the harmony of the divinely imposed ordinances. And there was also the reminder of God's power to bless or to curse. Sacrifice perpetually revealed God's power as the curse of sin was taken away and the road to blessing opened up, particularly symbolized by the meal uh, with which sacrificing often ended. We see in the wilderness the people who had the sanctuary at the heart of their camp, Later on we see Israel as the nation uh, that has the temple at the heart of its national life. And they had the people had to maintain themselves in an appropriate state of holiness so as not to defile the place of God's presence among them. And sacrifices were the means for cleansing and removing the defilement of the people and the defilement of the tabernacle itself. It was only in this way that earthly things could continue to reflect the holiness of God. And so Exodus, with its regulations for building the tabernacle, Exodus with its record of the tabernacle constructed, is not the end. It flows into Leviticus, where all those sacrifices are listed. The sacrifices that had to be offered whenever an individual sinned, even unwittingly. The special sacrifices on so many occasions when a priest or a ruler of the people or the whole community had sinned. And that is the first feature of Israelite worship that we have to grasp. The first feature that sets it apart in some respects from the way in which we worship now that the Israelite going to the central sanctuary to worship was engaging first in an act of sacrifice. As they went up, they brought the animal for sacrifice near. That was necessary, of course, but it was considered of particular significance. If you were going to sacrifice an animal, you obviously had to take it up to the altar. But the person who offered the victim was required to bring it to the altar wasn't a duty he could give to someone else indeed the action of bringing near came to be used on occasions for the whole of the sacrifice it was viewed as so important bringing near emphasized the involvement and the intention of the worshipper he wanted to honor God He wanted to live in a right relationship to God. And he saw that to do that, he had to get rid of the estrangement that his sin had brought into the relationship between himself and God. And he came bringing near one of the young of the domestic animals, one of his own rearing, ideally, one that was designed for his own sustenance. With human sacrifice forbidden, it was as close as one could get to bringing a life connected with the offerer's own. And then the offerer laid his hand on the head of the animal. The Hebrew verb is more like lent his hand on the head of the animal. Not some casual touch an act of identification, he pressed his weight on the animal. He was saying, this is my offering, this is the animal I am bringing. And he was also by that indicating his awareness that in a symbolic fashion his guilt was being transferred to the animal. We can see that most clearly in the ritual of the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16.21 where it says he, that is the high priest, is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. This laying on of the hand happened only in animal sacrifice and it seems to have been particularly associated uh, with What was peculiar to animal sacrifice, the use of blood for expiation. After the offerer had laid his hand on the sacrifice, there was a formal acceptance of it by the priest. The animal had to be physically perfect. God would accept nothing less when it came to making atonement to paying the ransom price. And then the victim was slaughtered. A very careful use of words. It's never put to death. It's a specific word for the taking of life in sacrifice. The slaughtering, well, in public offerings, in the regular offerings of the sanctuary, that was done by the priests. But in private offerings, it was done by the individual who brought the animal. By the offerer himself killing the animal. It made so much more impressive and vivid the effect of guilt, even though it was transferred, the impact that guilt had on life. And it was at that point that the priestly functions as such properly began, because the priests gathered the blood Later on in the temple there there was a special vessel, it's the second temple, not Solomon's temple, special vessel to catch the blood. It was conical in shape like an ice cream cone so that once the blood was inside it, it could never be put down until the blood was specifically used. And that's one of the things... When you compare what Israel did in sacrifice, sacrifice was common in all the surrounding nations. Many of the features of their sacrifices you can see reflected in the sacrifices of Israel. But from what we know of the rituals of the surrounding nations, there was a decided divergence between them and Israel with respect to the blood. Blood It was collected in other nations. It tended, it seems, generally just to have been poured away. It wasn't considered of any great significance. But in Israel, the priestly task of collecting the blood was given a very particular and emphasized role. Blood is the life in the flesh. Blood was recognized as giving life to physical existence, life in the flesh but blood on its own blood not in the flesh doesn't speak of life but of death blood shed is life taken life removed and it was with the blood the sign of the life that had been surrendered to the Lord and the need for that blood before the Lord could be approached properly that was symbolized by the application of the sacrificial blood in various ways, depending upon which sacrifice it was, but always with respect to the altar. Because the worshiper had identified himself with the victim, the victim's blood represented the worshipper's blood. It was the worshipper who was the one by his sin had marred the possibility of fellowship between himself and the God who dwelt in the midst of Israel. He was the one who had forfeited his life by his disobedience and was confessing his sin. Trusting that God would accept the offering as the substitute for his sin, uh, the offering as the substitute in his place. But ultimately, it was clear that all the animal sacrifices were inadequate for that purpose. You read through Leviticus, there's one sacrifice after another sacrifice. Sometimes you can look at them and you can't even quite work out what the difference between some of them is. The very multiplicity of the sacrifices and the details of the offerings as we read through Leviticus, serves to show us that what was being done was not effective, not definitive. Animals could never be adequate substitutes for human beings made in the image of God. Uh, What was going on was symbolic, was pointing to a higher reality. And the Old Testament was ever reaching out in longing for the fulfillment of what was typified, what was foreshadowed in these offerings. And that reaching out reaches its peak, its its highest expression in the Old Testament in the description of the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Furthermore, the Old Testament doesn't make an absolute out of sacrifice. It was never thought of as being sufficient on its own. That was the the quintessence of the prophetic message first enunciated by Samuel. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. And you find that repeated time and again throughout the Old Testament. It's not saying sacrifice isn't divinely instituted. It's not saying sacrifice is to be done away with. It's saying sacrifice is to be kept in its place. To do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice, as Solomon put it in Proverbs. And, of course, we see that most clearly in David's case, where he shows that the ritual requirement of sacrifice it was symbolic of what was needed in the spiritual realm. In Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. But from all this we have the reminder that the worship at the sanctuary, Israel approaching God. The people in old people of God in Old Testament times coming to the central sanctuary to worship him, had in the forefront of their mind and of their thinking, sacrifice. The altar was what met them as they came in to the courtyard of the tabernacle or into the the temple courtyard. They were therefore coming perpetually reminded of their own sinfulness, of the fact that there was so much in their living that separated them off from God. They were coming perpetually reminded of God's holiness, of the moral demands that He made on them, of the need to live before Him in the way in which He had laid down. And of course, their sacrifices also contained within them indications of their own inadequacy. So that the Old Testament worshipper, even though he might not see clearly uh, what was foreshadowed, realized that what he was doing, divinely commanded as it was, was a symbol, was not in itself the ultimate answer. It's only with the coming of Christ and the final sacrifice that he offered in his death that all that was signified in Old Testament worship in this respect is gathered into one climactic final sacrifice which does away with the need for repeated animal sacrifice. But what it does not do away with is the need for sacrifice so that worship may be acceptable in God's sight. And I think that's perhaps the, the first and lesson that we have to keep very clearly at the forefront of our minds as we're considering Israel's approach to God. They were reminded of it every time they came to the sanctuary to approach God-required sacrifice, to approach God-required that the problem of sin be dealt with. And it's still the case that all worship, all Christian worship, has to be rendered acceptable by being offered in the name and through the merit of the lamb who has been slain. We can very readily start at the wrong place and wonder why we finish at the wrong place. It was something that the signs and the symbols and the ritual of Israel did not permit the Old Testament church to get away with in the way in which nowadays perhaps we can. The focus was on The basic relationship between the worshipper and the God he worshipped, the focus was on the need for that sacrifice that would pay the ransom price to atone for sin so that worship, so that the fellowship, communion and enjoyment of the presence of God could proceed in a way that would be honoring to God and of benefit to the worshipper. So there is the first stage, the stage of sacrifice. But then we must move on to the book of Psalms. Because if sacrifice is concerned with ritual and only indirectly tells us what should have been the case in the inner life of the worshiper, in the book of Psalms we gain a more direct entrance into the inner life of Israel's worship. Many of the psalms began in specific events of David's life. But though what gave rise to the psalm historically was some specific event, the language that's used is general, not specific. Many times as you read through the book of psalms, you'll see in the small print at the top, for the choir master or for the director of music, depending on the translation that you use, And that indicates that the psalm was intended to have a place in the religious life of the nation, in the worship of the temple. Because that was something that is very much in the second stage of the central sanctuary. The singing of psalms and worship of that sort came into Israel's life through David. It wasn't something that seems to have been there to any great extent in the wilderness In the earlier period, it was David who established the guilds of temple singers. It was David who provided them with the the basic corpus of material to sing. Nowadays, of course, many scholars have abandoned that sort of approach to the psalms. The sort of approach that says, well, first of all, the psalm is related to a specific event in the life of David. I think that abandoning that historical approach is misguided. It still has a useful, sometimes a very appropriate part to play. Uh, I I find that many scholars say it's just implausible uh, to sometimes relate the specific psalm to the information that's given in the heading of the psalm. Uh, I uh, always liken that to some of these books you get telling us about the circumstances in which particular hymns were written. Uh, And very often there's a very particular history behind a hymn. Uh, And yet, you would probably not be able to work back from the hymn to the particular history, although knowing the particular history can often shed a considerable amount of light on the particular religious experience that's been expressed. There is a place for the historical approach insofar as we've adequate information. But at the same time, while more modern approaches have, that have been adopted in its place have been taken to excess by some, they've still got some merit. The modern approach doesn't ask so much of a psalm when was it written, by whom was it written, in what circumstances. It asks rather, when was the psalm used? How did it fit into the corporate worship of Israel? And that can be a very... Enlightening approach. And those who adopt it have recognized three principal categories of psalm. There are those psalms where praise is offered in response to who God is, how God has acted in creation, how God has acted in the past history of his people. I find it confusing that most scholars call those sorts of psalms hymns uh, because that seems to me to be a different sort of thing. Some of them call it descriptive praise but it's certainly a mode of approaching God that's very easily recognized as you read through the book of Psalms. The psalmists are looking at God they are looking at what they've, God has done either in creation, say something like Psalm 8 or in the past history of the people. And they are extolling God for what he is. There's then a, an even bigger category of psalm. Known often as the lament. Where the psalmist's in a situation of distress. Either he's being persecuted by enemies. Or he's ill. Or there are those uh, circumstances of one sort or another. Uh, where he feels that God's favor is no longer he does no longer knows God's favor and so he comes explaining his situation and appealing for deliverance the lament and there is another sort of praise praise for specific deliverance not saying that God's the creator not saying that God's helped people in the past but coming with the song of thanksgiving Public testimony, God has helped me recently, God has delivered the people now. It is the song of the individual who is once more aware that God has been active in his life and comes with a heart full of praise for what has been done. Now, many modern works use these three categories of psalm and focus around them. I'm going to come back to them in just a moment. But there's one deficiency of that approach that's become increasingly evident. It relegates to minor and incidental categories many psalms that are far more significant. In particular, it downgrades the two psalms the pair of psalms that are canonically set at the beginning of the book of psalms. That's why we were looking at reading them and singing them earlier. Because here is the way in which those who finally organized the collection of psalms ordered the material. I don't think it's an accidental thing. It's something that was done in various stages. You can trace if you look at a modern translation, it shows you that the book of Psalms is split into five books. It's a feature of the book of Psalms that is not evident in the authorized version, but is there in, in all the Hebrew copies of the text. That at various stages the collection grew, and at various stages, and we're not sure by whom, the collection was ordered. And the first two Psalms were deliberately put where they are. It's not an accident that the book of Psalms begins. Begins with Psalms 1 and 2. Because Psalm 1 points to the root. to true blessedness. That's the route that's followed by the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Law perhaps gets us off on the wrong track. Delighting in God's law is not promoting an academic spirit. Uh, Not promoting a spirit of legalism. Uh, Overtones of self-righteousness are quite out of place here. The law refers to God's instruction. Refers to God's inscripturated teaching. Psalm 1 is an invitation to respond to God's instruction as to the way to proceed in this life. It is saying, how do you want to live and live in a way that pleases God? Then you will hear, meditate and focus on his instruction. It's been said that the effect of reading through all 176 verses of Psalm 119 is overwhelming. Psalm 119 is very similar to Psalm 1. In that it is focusing on the place of God's word, God's instruction in human living. And probably the overwhelming effect is deliberate. Someone's put it, for the psalmist, the importance of the law is overwhelming. Apart from God's instruction, there is nothing worthy to be called life. So don't misunderstand the book of Psalms. For all that the book of Psalms is praise, it is also didactic. It is there to teach. For all that the book of Psalms gives expression time and again to exuberant joy in the presence of God, it does not consist of contentless repetition. It is there focusing on facts and rejoicing in realities. And though the book of Psalms began as the expression of God's people towards God, the book of Psalms now comes to us in Scripture and teaches us how to approach him. The book of Psalms is now revelation, and as we look at it and study it, we enter into true blessedness by delighting not only in it, but in the rest of God's inscripturated word, because there is the route to true happiness. And that Psalm, Psalm 1, is put at the beginning as a signpost saying, this way to true happiness. But it wasn't put there alone. Psalm 2 is linked to Psalm 1. You may remember that in one of the uh, earlier lectures, I mentioned, or at least I think I mentioned, the ancient device of inclusion. That if you were going to order a piece of poetry or a piece of literature, you often included at the end some element that balanced the way you began. Almost like a set of brackets saying, treat this as a unity. Well, in Psalm 1 and 2 you find the same thing. Because Psalm 2 ends with, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Oh, the blessednesses of those who take refuge in him and it's echoing and balancing the beginning of Psalm 1 blessed is the man oh the blessednesses of the man and there are a number of verbal links between Psalm 1 and 2 very difficult to get them across in English but the same word for instance is being used in Psalm 1 for him meditating on the law as is used in Psalm 2 for the nations plotting in vain the verb meditate is the same word as the verb plot. And you ask, how does that come about? Well, the the verb conveys the idea of quiet speech. It can be used for the cooing of doves, for muttering. Now, if we meditate, we probably do it quietly. But remember, in the ancient world, they never read quietly. Uh, There's the well-known story of... um, Augustine, when he went to visit his friend Ambrose, Bishop of Milan. And Ambrose was in bed with a cold. And Augustine said to him, how are you feeling? And Ambrose said, oh, it's terrible, I can't even read, I've got the cold. Because in those days, so often the manuscripts, there's no break between the words. And if you've got words written all continuously, the, the only way you can get sense out of them is to mouth them. And if mouthing, even quietly murmuring, was the way in which you you would read. And so we have the one meditating on God's law, quietly reading it over to himself. And you also get the contrary picture of the conspirators in a huddle in the corner, plotting. Not meditating over God's word, but plotting a vain thing. An effective contrast between the two courses of conduct an effective contrast between the different focus of the thinking of the godly man and of the nations in rebellion. Psalm 2 focuses on the communities rather than on the individual, but of course the major difference is that Psalm 2 introduces the Messiah. Not just the Lord's anointed king of Israel, but the one of whom it can be said, kiss the son. And in that way you will be truly fearing the Lord, and rejoicing with trembling. You see, here in Psalms one and two, we've got two different sorts of psalm that don't fit neatly into the categories that so often used in modern study, and they're two different sorts of psalm that are put there deliberately at the beginning of the book of Psalms. Here is the canonical entry point into Israel's worship. It is acceptance of the Lord's instruction and acceptance of the Lord's Messiah. He who lives under the guidance of God will praise and serve him through the one whom God has set up as his kingly deliverer. Now against that background, it may come as a surprise when you sit down and work out just how many of the psalms are what the modern scholars will call laments. It's perhaps about half of the book of Psalms. And if I may criticize from my own particular angle, I often think that modern hymnals fail to grapple with that aspect of the worship of God that is found in the Lament Psalm. Because here we have the worshipper grappling with the struggles and the negative side of the life of faith. I often feel that's absent. But it's certainly not absent from the book of Psalms. The Psalms are not the songs of heaven. They're the songs of faith on earth. They come out of the reality of this life as it's really lived. And that is what has always caused them to be appreciated by the believer. Caused them to be a focal point in the church's faith. And indeed, that is perhaps the main merit of modern study of the Psalms. It's brought the focus back onto this aspect of the situation. Because so often the Psalms begin from where we are, and where we are means that we begin with uttering a cry out of the depths. And that's how the Psalter moves on. There are the two beginning, the two entry points, Psalms 1 and 2. You go into Psalm 3, you've just had the vision of the messianic king. You've just had this marvelous picture of the nations and the judges and the rulers being told, kiss the sun. You would have thought you would have moved into Psalms of praise, Psalms of encouragement that the conqueror is going to come. And instead in Psalm 3, it's the reality now experienced of opposition and no victory in sight. Psalm 3 is historically located by its title a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. But there's no mention of Absalom in the words of the psalm. The words of the psalm describe a situation that's been found in all ages. O Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. It's one of the most common techniques in the book of Psalms. It's a very simple one. The psalmist makes his point by repeating the important words. Often you can actually do it with a computer to work out what a psalm's about. Do a word count. And the words that are most often used are the theme, the summary of what the psalm's about. It's a very elementary technique, but it's nonetheless effective. And there in those early verses of Psalm 3, this many, 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 you get the picture of the isolated believer surrounded by the hostile throng who've written him off. God will not deliver him. There's no help for him from God. And written off by the thinking of the worldly, the psalmist takes his stance in the lament. Not in terms of, if I have another chance, I'll manage to make it. Not in terms of, my own efforts will see me through. If the church organizes an appropriate program, we'll get there in the end. But he takes his stance on God's power and God's willingness to help. And this is where I think the historical approach helps. Because this is initially David. David, when he fled from his son Absalom. David experiencing not the unwarranted antagonism of the heathen, but the consequences of his own sin and of his own indulgence. Even in that set of circumstances where it's the bitter consequences of David's own sin that he's having to grapple with and deal with, he can still bring it before the Lord. One of the things that the Psalms of Lament teach us time and time again is that there is no set of circumstances in earthly life that are debarred as a subject of approach to God, as a subject that can be brought before him in prayer for divine intervention and divine deliverance. And in bringing these matters before him, before God, it's not an expression of a lack of faith, but a faith tested and depending on God alone. We also notice in the Psalms of Lament the boldness of the psalmist's faith. As you read through them, notice how often he doesn't come dressing up his requests in the language of the civil service. It's a straightforward imperative. Arise, hear, deliver, awake. Now this isn't just the language of someone in urgent need, though they are in urgent need. It's also the language of someone who already knows Access, the privilege of access to God. The psalmist is not the rebel against God who's being forced by the extremity of his circumstances to come to him. He is rather someone who's long known God, whose life is one of trust in God, and he's coming pleading the covenant relationship, calling upon God to be true to the commitment of his promised word in covenant. And that leads to what is the characteristic feature of these laments. That the psalmist does not give over until he has prayed himself out of his dejection. There are many psalms that begin in the depths. There are many psalms of lament that begin in perplexity with the taunts of the enemy. Only in one of them Psalm 88, are we left in a mood of darkness and despair? Only in Psalm 88 do we end. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken my companions and loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend. That is the only lament that begin, that ends where it began, in the depths. But even that is still a cry to the Lord, the God of my salvation. That's not the normal outcome. The normal outcome is despite the surrounding circumstances. Faith grapples on until it has regained its hold of God. And the sense of urgency, uh, the mood of desperation gives way to a feeling of gratitude and joy and well-being. It's one of the most startling things about the the poems of the Old Testament. Indeed, so startled were many early critics by it that they decided that bits of two different poems had got very carelessly joined together in all these places. They couldn't understand uh, what was going on. Martin Luther had a better idea and he said, no one will ever understand this unless they've experienced it themselves. These Psalms describe the state in which hope despairs and yet despair hopes at the same time. Can I just read Psalm 13? It's just a few verses. It's one of the classic instances of this. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord, my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. For he has been good to me. Or as I prefer to render it. For he shall have been good to me. The psalmist looks forward and says. I shall sing to the Lord. Even though now I'm saying how long. How long will I be in this spiritual darkness? Yet despair hopes. I shall sing to the Lord, for the day will come when he shall have been good to me. His promises are made, and I will battle on with that as the thing that gives my faith its strength. So as you're reading through the book of Psalms, it is useful. To look for the psalms that tell us about the importance of the law in the sense of God's instruction. About the psalms that point us to the Lord's Messiah, the coming King. About the many psalms that also are psalms of lament. That grapple with the perplexities and the difficulties and the despair of faith. Seeking to struggle through this life. And there are also the psalms that are given exclusively to praise. You see, it's not just in the lament psalms themselves that we find this movement from the depths to the faith perceiving the height. It's reflected in the shape of the Psalter as a whole. The lament psalms are predominantly in the first part of the Psalter. They're predominantly from David. And the book of Psalms as a whole is structured to move towards the hymns of praise. And it ends with five, six psalms of praise. It is doxology that has to have the final word. The title, "To healing Praises, reminds us that the primary of the intention of the book as a whole is to praise God. And in the Psalms there is no doubt about the one who is praised. It is God the creator. The created realm bears testimony to the one who has made it. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Psalm 19 verse 1. Emphasis on God's power and wisdom. They weren't saying that God can be found by examining the skies. They were saying that if you have read Genesis 1 and you've understood what's said there, then with it as your spiritual filter, you can look and see the handiwork of God in the heavens around. And they're also emphasizing that it's in creation that God's divine kingship is founded. He is the the Lord, is the great God, as Psalm 95 reminds us, in his hand are the depths of the earth. The sea is his, for he made it. And therefore all should be responding to him. There's also the awareness that God's rule, God the creator rules, not just in the actions of the past, but in the present. There are the Psalms in the late 90s emphasizing the Lord reigns. His creation flows into providence. Psalm 145, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living being. God is there as the creator, as the God of providence, as the God who has revealed himself in the history of his people. Remember, says Psalm 105, the wonders he has done, his miracles and the judgments he pronounced. And it's focusing on the God who has committed himself to Israel, in covenant, in covenant bond. But perhaps it's instructive just for a moment to consider how Israel did not praise God. The psalmists very rarely use abstract terms in describing God when there are terms used <clears throat> they're generally used as metaphorical predicates rather than vocatives are you awake still? <laughs> let me put it in examples you don't get God addressed as O light O dawn O wisdom you may get the Lord is a sun and shield a comparison being made but the psalmist's back in a way in which a whole realm of Christian piety does not from addressing God in terms of his attributes. Indeed, when there is a dress of that sort, it's made personal, my rock, our shield, not o-rock or o-shield. Why? It seems to be a conscious efforts being made lest the title Legitimate though it is, of an attribute of God or a way of thinking of God becomes detached from God himself, comes almost to have a separate existence. It seems to arise out of a desire to guard the oneness, the uniqueness of God, that there's a deliberate avoidance. It's not perhaps something that hits you until it's pointed out, but it is there. It's something that's avoided. They talk of the Lord. They talk of the Lord, the God of Israel. They'll say the God of Israel is light, that he sends light. But they never let the light or the dawn or the sun or any of these other attributes or metaphors they use to to, to describe the reality of God's uh, power or his character. They never let them go off into abstract terms that might be thought of As something different from God. He's never described as, oh, justice, or oh, holiness, or oh, love, or oh, wisdom, or oh, truth. You will find shepherd of Israel and hearer of prayer, you will find king, you will find some terms with my and our personal pronouns that link it into the situation. But I think there's a lesson there that's teaching us not to seek for the exotic and unusual in our vocabulary of address to God, but rather to seek to have a greater understanding of the ordinary and the stated terms. But over against that, Israel had no hesitation on praising the name of the Lord. The communication of Yahweh's, the Lord's name and his word are the means by which the God of Israel made himself known. The word tells about the content of what God has revealed. God's name tells about the person who has done the revealing. The divine word is the truth that sheds light on this world and on our ways. The divine word is what gives the faithful promise that will surely come to pass. But the divine name sums up all that God has shown himself to be. And that's the source of the psalmist's confidence. Those who know your name will trust in you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. In Psalm 9 or in Psalm 145, I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. And so often the psalmists plead for God's action for your name's sake in terms of all that you have revealed yourself to be. In biblical language, the name has a dimension and a dynamic that are foreign to our way of thinking. It relates to the self-manifestation of God. The process that's not really concluded until Christ came and could say, I have revealed your name eh, to those whom you gave me out of this world. The NIV obviously thinks that's too difficult and it just says, I have revealed you. It's not changed the text, it's just changed the translation. But it's, I have revealed your name. I have revealed, says Jesus, All that God is. And that is the focus that the psalmist use. Not abstract terms, but this term of the name of God signifying all that he's shown himself to be. The name of the Lord endures forever. His renown lasts through all ages. It's going beyond the names that are used. The names like Elohim, the normal word for God. It's one of the puzzles sometimes of Old Testament. Old Testament setting forth the monotheistic faith of Israel. The faith that said there is but one God. And yet the ordinary word they use for God is plural. Every time the normal word you see in your Old Testament translation, God, it's a plural word in the original. And it's the same plural word that they would use to describe heathen deities. And at first it seems odd. It seems to be at variance. But that plural form, gods, encapsulates the claim that all that can be thought of as truly divine is to be found only in the God of Israel. You can't, he so exhausts the concept of God that there's no room for any other being. To have any share in it. There is the name Yahweh also. The name of the covenant God of Israel. Specifically associated with his saving work. Say Psalm 81 verse 10. I am the Lord your God. Yahweh your God. Who brought you up out of Egypt. Open wide your mouth. And I will fill it. But the name that I want to end on. Is the name the Lord of hosts. It too has vanished from many modern translations. But in many ways it sums up Israel's praise of the Lord. You'll find it especially Psalm 24, verses 7 to 10. This psalm seems to have originally described the scene when the ark was brought to Jerusalem or perhaps into the temple. And it shows this name, the Lord of hosts, as employed for God. The Lord of hosts is the one who is enthroned on the cherubim. Here he is described as strong and mighty, mighty in battle. And there are many who suppose that the term Lord of hosts, that could just as easily be translated Lord of armies, started off in terms of the God uh, who controlled the fortunes of battle, when Israel went forth against her enemies. It may very well have started there, but it went much broader than that. It encompasses God's sovereign control over all that he made. This word hosts is used as early as Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed. The NIV has it in all their vast array, in all the hosts of them. It's a picture of God the creator and the fullness and multiplicity of all that he's made is completed. And the Lord of hosts, the Lord God, the Lord Almighty brings back before us the reality that the God who was responsible for the heavens and the earth and all the host of them is the God who rules the God who rules in covenant faithfulness. O Lord God of hosts who is like you. You are mighty O Lord and your faithfulness surrounds you. It is that perception that gives the people of God confidence to move on. As we find in the chorus of Psalm 46. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And it is that perception that gives the grand climax to the Psalm, Psalm 24. Who is he, this King of Glory? The Lord of Hosts. He is the King of Glory. The Lord of Hosts who made heaven and earth and all their vast array. The Lord of Hosts who rules over that vast array that He has made. The Lord of Hosts who comes, in terms of that Psalm, into the temple. In the symbol of the ark. As the God of covenant blessing. Who will dwell with his people. And who rejoices. Being enthroned. On the praise of Israel. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. We've got uh, about 15 minutes. uh, For questions and comments, which we've fully used on the last four occasions. I hope we'll do the same tonight. So, um, can I invite uh, comment and questions? Yes, Brian. One of the things I find quite difficult is, uh, personally, is the often reference to enemies. You referred to, to, you pointed to Psalm 13, how long will my enemy triumph over me? When I'm using the Psalms devotionally, I find it quite difficult to enter into that feeling. Um, Being a nice little chap, I don't like to (laughs) see what I mean. It's Finding quite difficult to have a go at my enemies. Who are they? Am I to uh, direct that to the devil? um, Or to find a few people who don't like me? (laughs) Can you help me with that? Those are very genuine, real questions. I think that the first thing I would observe is that although David had many very specific enemies that we could name because we're told about them, uh, the Psalms don't name any of them. Uh, Also, David, who wrote many of these Psalms that talk about foes and enemies, was not someone who was out to act in a spirit of personal vindictiveness how often it was he had Saul's life at his mercy and refused to do it but these are psalms where David is speaking as the one who's aware that he is the Lord's anointed king and that those who are his enemies are those who are the enemies of the Lord's cause and he is speaking of them I would say in the Psalms, not so much in particular terms, but in general terms, the evildoers—and my eyes just caught Psalm 14—are those who devour my people as men eat bread, and who do not call on the Lord. Now we're here dealing with the solemn reality—the reality that's been there since the beginning. The Protoevangelium: there are the two seeds. You asked about that last week. Am I right? There are the two seeds. And there is permanent hostility. It's not the case that there's no transference from one side. There's a one-way transference. The, 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 the individuals are not ultimately categorized as the seed of the devil. But there is the reality that those who go on on that side are going to be eternally condemned. Now, David is here saying... Um, I'm grappling with those who are the enemies of the Lord's cause. Will not God intervene? Will not God act in justice and judgment? Can I put it to you this way? We say, thy kingdom come. We say, hasten, O Lord, the day of thy kingdom's coming. But when that day comes, it's the day of separation. It's we are as we say, "Thy kingdom come," and we are looking to the final coming of the Lord. He is going to make the separation absolute and irrevocable, so that even when we say, "Thy kingdom come," we may be expressing it in a more positive sense. We may have another, but we've got also in we are also entailing the reality that David quite openly espouses and the reality that the New Testament does not shrink back from either Paul is quite happy to say if anyone does not love the Lord a curse be on him come O Lord and again in Galatians um, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you let him be eternally condemned the Psalms are quite open about that solemn side to to human existence there are warnings I, I certainly don't think that we should personalize it you know if anyone does not love the Lord anathema a curse be on him but that's different from saying, I'll take Psalm 109 and uh, you know, we'll apply it particular application to X, Y, or Z. It's to those who impenitently continue to fulfill the character description given in those psalms that the words that are spoken there apply. And they are hard words. And they, 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 I'm not saying they're easy, and I'm not even saying that one should therefore, necess- because they're there, that it's always appropriate to sing them. Uh, I think it's the case that one ought to be one ought to be perfectly sure, particularly if you're in a position where you're leading public worship, that those who are engaging in it understand what they're singing, uh, and therefore. It's only a a well-educated, spiritually-educated congregation that are going to be in a position uh, to sing those psalms in an acceptable fashion. But there is that other side, and the psalms are true to life, and they are true to the situation of spiritual warfare, both in which the individual and in which the Church collectively finds itself. Here's Frank. Uh, on the same theme of singing psalms uh, There are some people that say We should sing psalms No way in scripture doesn't give me precedent To sing rabbinical choruses Or even hymns It doesn't say that you should But it says that they sang psalms, say psalms. It say that that. Um, Well, obviously I'm very happy To find people singing psalms <laughs> <laughs> um i'm not partic- I, i'm not particularly wanting to enter into uh, that particular level C- can i put it this way i think many congregations have impoverished themselves through not singing psalms it is something that has died out in many denominations and it should not have done and quite apart from whether one ought or ought not to sing hymns uh, there is obvious scriptural warrant for singing psalms, and there is obvious deficiency. I think it's been changed. I think the situation is changing. A lot more people seem now to be interested in singing psalms than w- was the case uh, some time back. Uh, but uh, I, I think it's been forgotten. You know, I, I was just glancing at this production, which is not a Scottish production, but it gives a very interesting little potted history of the singing of psalms in England. On page six, and it's um, a very—it's um, surprising the extent to which the awareness of which psalm singing existed in England has died out in people's current perception. The psalms are part of the heritage of the Church of God worldwide, and there are there are difficulties in them, uh, but they are God-given difficulties. And in struggling with them, uh, we are maturing in our understanding of the faith. And I would certainly urge uh, that the Psalms be given uh, their proper place, without defining that too closely, um, uh, their proper place uh, in the worship of of the Church. Here's Pam. Um, You said that... um Corporate worship was much more understood, or at least the Old Testament says much more about corporate worship than personal. Yet the Psalms are so personal, presumably as David first penned them, they were as a result of his personal sort of relationship with the Lord. So what exactly did you mean? Well, there isn't, for instance, a very clear record of how the Israelites worshipped you know for instance we know that three times a year all the males were supposed to go up to Jerusalem and there was the worship at the central sanctuary. but what did they do for the rest of the year Uh, there is um, there is a mention I forget the text now of the Sabbath being a Sabbath of rest uh, and there being holy convocations throughout your dwellings back in I think it's Leviticus which certainly seems to indicate that there were some sorts of meetings expected throughout the land, but we know nothing about them. Uh, we don't even know where the synagogue came from. We don't even know when the synagogue started. The, the current favourite is that it started in the exile. But I, I can't, in, can't personally see how, how it started uh, before that. Uh, How it didn't start before that, because of the need for those who were out with Jerusalem, more than a Sabbath day's journey from Jerusalem, to have some form of of, uh, corporate expression of praise and worship. But we just don't know anything about it. So we don't know how these personal expressions of David eventually came to be used by the callers? No, no. We we, we can only guess... uh, and there's also the other level. I mean, if, if suppose I were to say, well, how do people here worship God individually? Well, you would say, well, they might read their scriptures, in the Bible, at some point in the day. That wasn't of an available option in ancient Israel. Uh, copies of scripture were very costly and very rare. The most the ordinary Israelite might have would be an amulet. Some of them have been found by archaeologists with a verse or two scratched on it. Many more of them, we know later on, but we're talking now about 1st, 2nd century B.C. into into A.D., uh, obviously would have much scripture memorized. They uh, they would have, as David says, hidden God's word in their heart. Uh, They weren't relying on a written copy of it. Um, Probably the Psalms were the bit that they had most of all hidden because if they were singing them at all, one of the best ways of... uh, Uh, memorizing anything is singing it. Uh, But we just don't know. And there's not much evidence in Scripture to allow us to build up a picture of the individual piety, the piety in the family, piety in the local community. But we have got a picture uh, at the central sanctuary. David obviously wrote many of these psalms. He speaks of I. But some of these psalms that are addressed to I are also indicated for public worship. I've just got it open here. at Psalm 30. I will exalt you, O Lord. But it's a psalm, a song, for the dedication of the temple. Uh, So David, who set up the guilds of temple singers, obviously took many of the poetic compositions he had already written on specific occasions, and one can probably find in the first volume, the first book of the Book of Psalms, it finishes about Psalm 41, One can obviously find there uh, perhaps the set of psalms that David bequeathed uh, to Solomon uh, for the early worship in the temple and others uh, added later. But that's the problem. We haven't got the evidence. We can't build up a picture in any way reliable. It's all by hypothesis and guesswork of the the personal piety of um, ancient Israel. Yes. It seems that the synagogue was more a place of teaching from where I did scriptures. whether you include teaching as being part of worship is really another matter. And also the Jews had to teach their children what the Lord had done for them <coughs> and they specifically told when your children ask, then you have to give them an explanation. Um, but Would you draw a distinction between teaching in that sense and worship? I think I would, but... Well, I can see that one can, but uh, the point I was making earlier this evening is that even the psalms that are vehicles of worship are also being viewed as modes of instruction. They are didactic. Uh, And indeed, I personally would say that one of the times that... uh, uh, one's emotions go into worship one f- is having seen a little bit more deeply having been informed a little bit more about the reality of God and his purposes I, I wouldn't, we-, we-, we are wholes and, and I- I'm very cheery of separating sort of intellect off from um, response of, of worship uh, all sorts of aspects f- flow together and mesh into the whole as, yes as regards the synagogue obviously there were synagogue schools there was a great deal of worship our, inf- our deal of teaching our information about that's late it's about, by the time of Christ even perhaps a bit later probing back into how they did it how they fulfilled that requirement say in the time of David or of Solomon we just don't really have the information at least I haven't come across it come on. I want to ask you about the purity of worship. <laughs> Could you just you talked about the central temple you know? mm-hmm. now which Solomon built. And then you had but also Solomon heart was turned to other gods and there were he built high places and things which weren't destroyed until Josiah's time. How pure was the worship of God's people? The I I was talking about the norm the divinely appointed norm the history of the Old Testament church is of a constant falling short of that norm Solomon fell into the trap of uh, having a great many um, wives that was good politics if you uh, had a political relationship uh, with another nation you tended to have a marriage between the royal households. One can think of marriages of thistles and roses in this country. Um, It worked to our advantage, I think, for once. Uh. But when these foreign wives came to Jerusalem to join Solomon's harem, they came with their own priests and with internationally accepted conventions that these priests were able to set up Sanctuaries to the gods of whatever princess had been wedded to Solomon with the sort of rights that an embassy would have nowadays, diplomatic immunity. And once the court got polluted with that, it spread again throughout the land. And it was obviously a standing invitation to Canaanites uh, who, had not been, who had just sort of conformed uh, to, to revert to their old ways. So the, the history of the Old Testament is a perpetual history of Israel falling short of the norm But that doesn't in any way lower the norm or detract from it. It's just the reflection that whatever community, Israel or sins, we don't live up to all that has been revealed in God's truth. We constantly fall short of it.